This is a Cato Special Podcast. I'm Caleb Brown. There's a lot about the election of this year that we still don't know, but the big picture seems to be pretty clear. Republicans didn't have the election day they wanted, and the more conspiratorially minded Republicans fared worse than the rest. Emily Eakins directs polling at the Cato Institute. She gave me her takes on the election and what did and did not influence voters. A whole lot of this election is still up in the air. That is control of the Senate, uh, the margin of victory in an expected Republican takeover of the House, and of course, all the activity at the at the state level. Some of that still needs to be determined. But what are your initial thoughts, having looked at some of the data uh, about this election? So a couple of things. First, historically speaking, going into midterms, the out party, meaning the party that is not in the presidency, um, tends to pick up seats. There are a few exceptions to this, like George W. Bush in 2002, the Republicans picked up seats despite a Republican being in the presidency. But typically, the out party picks up seats. This happened in 2010 with Barack Obama. Republicans gained like 60 seats. Um, The Democrats had a bit of a blue wave in 2018 when um, Donald Trump was president. And so going into this, Everyone would just expect Republicans would pick up seats going in. But there's more than that. The economy is not doing well. We have extremely high levels of inflation um, over the past several years, high gas prices, high interest rates. And more than that, we have a disliked president. Most people do not approve of President Biden or the, the job that he's doing. And on the issues that they say they care about, inflation, the economy, jobs, they say they trust Republicans more than Democrats to address these issues. So going into the election, everyone's expecting a fairly decently sized red wave where Republicans take the House um, and probably Republicans take the Senate. Now, things got a little bit muddled this summer when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. And when that happened, things flipped and Democrats started to take the lead in a lot of, of key Senate races. But after Labor Day, people kind of come back from their summer vacations. The races started tightening. And by elect, uh, the night before the election, forecasting models expected, um, while it was a dead heat, that Republicans would probably take the Senate as well as the House. So what happened on election night? You might have noticed that a lot of Republican governors, like, say, in Georgia, uh, Republican Governor Brian Kemp, running ahead of the Republican Senate candidate, Herschel Walker. You see this in a lot of different states around the country. So when we went to bed on election night, people were pretty surprised uh, about what happened. And so the question is, what what happened to the expected red wave and was and were the polls wrong? Well, the polls actually did pretty well because again going in um it was a it was considered a dead heat for the senate with a slight favor for republicans so the polls were generally pretty accurate but if the, to the extent that they had a bias they actually had a pro republican bias whereas in 2020 and 2016 they had a bit more of a pro democratic bias so that is interesting that to the extent that there was a little bit of air it went the other direction this time around um but there's some there's some other pressures that seem to really help Democrats and happy to, to walk you through that if you want to talk about that. This was, of course, the first election since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Um, and a lot of states had explicit issues uh, related to that on the ballot, including my home state of Kentucky. But uh, what was the role that that played in giving Democrats a boost? 
So abortion um, was the main strategy. Emphasizing abortion was a main strategy that Democrats went with. If you look at where almost a great majority of their um, campaign spending went, you know, on, on, on issue ads, it went onto the issue of abortion. Um, people thought that was kind of a risky bet because when the economy's not doing well, I mean, I think one poll found that like 80% of Americans think that we're either currently in a recession or that we're going to be in one in the next year, that would they really prioritize abortion over the economy? And the the answer is it's a little bit complicated. I don't think it's as simple to say that Democrats had a better night than expected due simply to abortion. But to put it in perspective, let me share some data from the exit polls. One of the exit poll questions asks, what's the most important issue to the country? And almost half of Americans said the economy. And all the other issues were single digits, including abortion. It just was, it didn't register very high. So you think, okay, this is, this election was was supposedly about the economy. Well, then what happened? Voters say that they trust Republicans on the economy. They said that was the most important issue. What happened? Well, there was another question on the exit poll that said, what was the most important issue to your vote? Inflation is high, 31%. But right next to it, the next top issue was abortion, 27%. So just a couple points behind inflation. So I think you did have a lot of economic voters, but you had a lot of abortion voters. This was, it seemed less about persuasion and more about really activating a lot of um, Democratic voters who may have not um, been willing to show up for a midterm. You know, they're a little bit more excited when there's a presidential candidate on the ballot, um, but this got them to show up. But that's not the whole story, because if you look at the turnout data, it didn't seem like a Democratic turnout advantage. If anything, it might have been a slight Republican turnout advantage. And the fact that so many Republican governors, like Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, Governor Brian Kemp in Georgia, and elsewhere, that these Republican governors did better than the other Republicans on the ticket, we have to ask more questions. It can't just be about, I think I think abortion alone is too narrow of kind of an explanation. I think the other component was questions um, about seriousness and competency. And what do I mean by that? Um, We're running some analysis right now looking at Republican candidates who um, said that they did not believe that Biden won the 2020 election. Um, And we're comparing those Republican candidates to the Republicans who did not say that, meaning that they accepted that Biden won the 2020 election and compared their outcomes. Um, so right now, the data is somewhat preliminary because we ha- not all the Senate races have been called. But in the Senate thus far of the called races, the candidates who said that Trump really won 2020, they only won about a third of their races. The candidates, the Republican candidates who said that Biden won the election, um, 66% or two-thirds won their races. Um, and so I think that there is another dynamic here. Um, it's probably not as extreme as perhaps some media outlets might frame it, um, but I think think that the democracy argument, the democracy angle did play a role here because I think candidates who did not um, say that Biden legitimately won the presidency came across as perhaps sowing the seeds of chaos and being 
um, a bit unserious. And so voters voted for serious rather than those that they viewed as perhaps not being competent for the job. Um, There's some data that kind of bolsters this, that going into the election, we noticed that there were higher shares of voters in key um, in key states where there were big Senate races that said they wanted the Republicans to take the Senate, but they weren't planning, but fewer of them were planning to vote for their state's Senate candidate. We saw this in Pennsylvania, Georgia, Nevada, and Arizona. And those four states are the key states. I mean, the, the Senate just depends on what happens or what happened in those states. And so you had more voters that said they wanted a Republican Senate than, than there were voting for their own Republican. What does that tell us? That tells us that the candidates that the Republican parties in those states chose to run as their as their nom as the party's nominee were weaker candidates. Um, another candidate would have done better than the candidates that they picked. And so I think that is another dynamic explaining what you know why there wasn't the red wave that people expected. Kentucky was one of those states, and of course I watched it fairly closely where you had a, a fairly overwhelming uh, vote for Rand Paul, the incumbent U.S. senator. and But you also had on that ballot an explicit abortion amendment that would have empowered the state legislature to effectively ban abortion. So uh, looking at the, the, the vote totals for both Rand Paul and this abortion amendment, which failed, by the way, you had what appeared to be a lot of voters willing to support uh, a strident libertarian leaning uh, candidate who is a Republican and opposing what effectively would empower an outright ban on abortion. And I just thought that was fascinating in a state like this. Right. Um, I think it's because lawmakers on both the Democratic and the Republican sides often are out of touch with how regular Americans think about abortion, where kind of the median voter is on abortion is that they do want it to be legal um, in the first trimester and up to some certain point. And then after that point, whether that's 12 weeks or 15 weeks, they want it to be banned except for, you know, special cases like health reasons, life of the mother, things like that. Um, So to the extent that lawmakers go too far, like I think Cortez Masto, um, the Democratic candidate in in Nevada, the Senate candidate in Nevada, uh, wants there to be no restrictions at all. Like that's like very out of touch. People don't think that you can have that you should have an abortion like right before, um, you know, a child, a baby is born. And then others don't want to go so far as to say never under any circumstances should there be an abortion. Like what if in the cases of rape or incest or the mother's health or the child's health and things like that. So I, I think that whenever lawmakers kind of go too far to the extremes of where Americans are, they really backlash to that. And we saw that in the exit polls, that of the people who said they were angry about the the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, there was a higher share of Republicans in that um, angry bucket than there were Democrats in the happy bucket, if that makes any sense. You had more crossover Republicans that were displeased with with the abortion decision than there were Democrats happy about it. In these as-yet unresolved Senate races that will uh, determine control of the U.S. Senate. What stands out to you? 
That's a good question. So uh, the way I've been thinking about it is, well, let me share with you the four Senate races that I was paying attention to, um, that that all pollsters were paying attention to that would kind of determine the outcome of the Senate and then kind of like what happened there. Um, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada. Um, going into the election, um, prediction models actually thought that Pennsylvania would go to the Republican, um, Dr. Dr. Oz, Mehmet Oz. Um, and he lost. Um, he lost to his Democratic opponent, John Fetterman. So that's off the table. What remains is Georgia, Nevada, and Arizona. Those are the remaining toss-up states where Republicans were kind of within the margin um, of taking those seats. Now let's look at Arizona. Those um, forecasting models expected that Arizona would probably go to the Democrats with uh, Mark Kelly being the Democratic candidate running against Blake Masters. Blake Masters at, early on had come out pretty strongly um, against the idea that Biden had really won the presidency and so that he believed that Trump had lost due to due to fraud. Um, that didn't seem to play well because he's running behind the Republican uh, gubernatorial candidate, Carrie Lake, um, by a couple percentage points. So that didn't seem to go well, and he's probably not going to overcome that. So we can kind of expect most likely Arizona goes to the Democrats. So that leaves two states. Republicans would need to win two, uh, both Georgia and Nevada to take the Senate. What do we think is going to happen? In Georgia, they have a rule that requires the winning candidate to to um, at least get 50% of the vote. Um, Raphael Warnock, as of right now, has about 49.2% of the vote. And his Republican opponent, Herschel Walker, has 48.7%. Um, and I think they have like 99% of the votes accounted for. And so right now, Georgia is headed to a runoff. Well, what happened? Where are the other percentage points of the votes? It turns out there was a libertarian on the ballot. Um, I think his name is Chase Oliver. He got two percentage points of the vote. And so that seems to have denied either Warnock or Walker that 50% threshold that they would need to avoid a runoff election. So this runoff well, election... Well, let, well, I will defend this libertarian candidate and just say he didn't do it. The voters did it. Yes, the voters did it. <laughs> um, it's not clear, though, what the effect of this libertarian candidate will have on the eventual outcome, because what we don't know is who would turn up for a runoff election versus a midterm. Presumably, you know, some analysts might expect that a runoff election could advantage Republicans because Republicans tend to do um, they tend to turn out a little bit more in these um less well-known elections. You know, midterms, presidential elections, you get a lot of excitement. The media is reminding people to vote. In these runoff elections, less people are paying attention, fewer people turn out, and that tends to advantage Republicans. But that's not what happened last time around when Warnock won his initial seat. It was in a runoff. And so I think that we just don't know what's going to happen in Georgia. Um, it could go Democrat or Republican. The other state is Nevada. Nevada, um, the two candidates are Republican Adam Laxall and the Democrat is Cort um, Cortez Mastow. She is the sitting incumbent senator. She's the first Latina senator. And so many analysts expected that she would kind of have an easy chance at re-election. But for some reason, she hasn't. Um, and, and one particular reason why is that she doesn't seem to be polling you know, super well with Hispanic voters. Um, 
right now she is more Hispanic voters replying to vote for her than not. But some pollsters on the ground in Nevada said that she really needed to get about 60 percent of the Hispanic vote and above to be competitive. And polls showed her under 50 percent, like about 48 percent of Latino voters were planning to vote for her. So that was really interesting, you know, why she wasn't a more compelling candidate, because incumbents have an advantage, you know, given that she's the first Latina senator. People thought it would be uh, an easier race for her to win. And as of right now, her Republican challenger is ahead. Um, But we don't know what's going to happen because there are two counties that have a lot of mail-in ballots that they haven't counted yet. And Nevada law um, requires that all ballots that were postmarked by, I think, November 8th to be counted. And so they're going to be counting those for a while. Um, Given that they're coming from Washoe County and Clark County, these are the more populous counties counties, you would think that could give the Democrats an advantage. But given that she just hasn't been um, a candidate that really excited a lot of Democratic base voters, it's really unclear what's going to happen. Um, we, we dug into the data to try to figure out why was she not more of a compelling candidate, um, especially among Hispanic voters. And and there's probably a, a myriad reasons why. But one thing that stood out is that she would use the phrase, the term Latinx when talking about Latino and Hispanic voters. Latinx instead of Latino or Latina, Latinx. That particular label was researched by the Pew Research Center. They wanted to know how many Latino people or Hispanic people used or identified that term. And it's about three to four percent of all Latino or Hispanic voters use that term. So it's really a word that's out of touch with regular Hispanic voters. Um, And I think that that's just a little bit of a bellwether of kind of where she stood relative to the voters in her state. Um, And so we'll just have to see how the numbers actually play out. Um, But I thought that that was a really interesting race to pay attention to. And really what what, um, determines who holds the Senate will be what happens in Nevada and what happens in the Georgia runoff. And of course, the uh, elephant in the room, the nominal elephant in the room, what role did Donald Trump play here? If we're trying to, if if Republicans uh, need to have a sort of come to Jesus moment about their affiliation with Donald Trump, it seems like having a president who may have ultimately cost the party the Senate in two successive elections might be a pretty good reason to uh, reconsider their relationship with him. I think that there is definitely evidence that suggests that Trump cost Republicans the Senate in this election. And the reason why, as I mentioned earlier, there were more voters in Georgia, Nevada, Arizona, Pennsylvania, these key Senate races. There were more voters who wanted a Republican Senate then wanted to vote for their Senate candidate. Um, Like Herschel Walker, for instance, he was someone that kind of was propelled to that position by Trump. And he has just said a lot of bizarre things throughout throughout the election that are often just verifiably untrue um, and a lot of allegations of um, misconduct and abuse. So just not a strong candidate. Um, And he probably wouldn't have been propelled to the Republican uh, to be the Republican nominee if it hadn't have been for Trump Um, and other candidates as well. um, There were candidates that were kind of pushed to the front of the line in the primaries that may not have been voters' first choice, like Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania. Um, He might actually be a great candidate in a different state, but in Pennsylvania, voters there just never felt 
um, that he was an authentic Pennsylvanian. Um, and when his Democratic challenger, John Fetterman, had a stroke, um, people thought that maybe voters would be um, would have reservations about voting for him. But in fact, voters were more concerned that Dr. Oz didn't really have a, an authentic relationship with Pennsylvania than they were about John Fetterman. And his health. Um, and so, again, there's if you go into all the different examples, we you kind of see time and time again that weaker candidates got through the primaries with Trump's um, kind of endorsement than otherwise may have happened. The other evidence is what I mentioned earlier, which is that the candidates who said that Donald Trump actually won 2020 and not Biden, they were more likely to lose the Republicans that said that Biden really won and that Biden and that Trump didn't um, and that Trump lost, they were more likely to win. And I think what you're seeing is that when you're outside the primary and you're in the general election, those independent voters um, kind of in the middle that could kind of swing either way, they wanted someone that they didn't think was going to sow the seeds of chaos. Imagine if after every election, the person who loses says that there was election fraud. That is very chaotic. How are you supposed to have a democracy where that happens every time? I think voters don't like that. And they wanted a candidate who they felt like was serious, that was competent, and that would represent their best interests. And so for this election, they went a lot more for the Democrats than would otherwise have been expected, given inflation, given the economy, given how people are not happy with Biden. Even within his own party, a majority of Democrats don't want him to run again in 2024. And despite that, still the Democrats had a relatively good night given what was expected. And I think a lot of that does have to do with abortion, but also Trump. Uh, the other, this is may maybe smaller, maybe it's uh, every bit as important. Um, Democrats spent tens of millions of dollars advancing candidates that they felt were more Trumpy and that would lose in a general election. And arguably, some of that money helped push some of those candidates through those primaries, and many of them did lose on Election Day. That's true. I mean, I think that um, the Senate candidate in New Hampshire, Bulldog, uh, may have been in that category. If you if you look at what he did in the primary, he signed a letter that said that, you know, Trump you know, should have won the election. That there was fraud. And then after he won the primary, he immediately he reviewed the data and changed his mind and that he now believed that Biden had actually rightfully won the election and not and that there was not election fraud. I mean, so he kind of conveniently shifted from primary to general. And there's a lot of races where even at like kind of local, more local levels where this has seemed to happen, where people feel compelled in the primary to say one thing and then the general say another. Um, and it's tricky if, if most of your primary voters believe believe that that's why candidates are saying it in the primary. But if your general general election voters don't believe that, then that's why they're pivoting. Um, so as long as Trump, January 6th, a lot, you know, allegations of voter fraud continue, it's going to hurt Republicans on Election Day. Emily Eakins directs polling at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.